millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and welcome to the Roger Report podcast. We have a special episode today with Sunderland DFC club historian Rob Mason. Uh, one of a figure that's been a constant of my life actually it's on the football club always been relevant program editor weren't you for a while program editor for a long time yeah SCFC obviously historian now mm-hmm. uh, you probably spoke to every manager since um, I've I've interviewed every manager actually the most recent manager that I've interviewed is the one from longest ago and that was Ken Knighton nice who was manager in the 1979-80 season and I've just interviewed Ken for a, a new book that I've just been writing which is um, it's Tales. Tales, Tales of Red and White's Volume 3. I think you're going to be speaking to Graham Anderson about it. Yeah. I've worked on this book with Graham Anderson, ex of the Sun and Echo, and a good friend of mine. And another good friend of mine, Lance Hardy, the author of uh, Sunderland, Stoko and 73. Um, and we did a book together that was Tales of the Red and White's Volume 2 a year ago on, on some former Sunderland players. Before that, we'd all contributed heavily to the initial Volume 1 that had a number of other writers as well. And this time we've done six managers. So Ken Knighton was a manager I was desperate to to go and interview because he was he was the only manager alive who I'd not interviewed. And yeah. he lived down south of Bristol. And uh, and so I, I managed to get in touch with him and went down, I think it was in uh, the late, late May, just at the end of last season. And I went down there and spent an afternoon at, uh, at Ken Knighton's house with him. Very, very entertaining guy. I hope people, when they see that chapter in the, in the book that comes out on November the 16th, will... Uh, Will be fascinated because Ken Knighton, um, I think, is the least well known of the Sunderland managers who have actually ever won anything. Certainly, the post-war Sunderland managers who've ever won anything. I don't think too many people remember Alex Mackey, the manager of the 1902 champions. No, um, he he sort of goes under the radar a bit, but not many people know of Ken Knighton. And also, Ken Knighton was the last Sunderland manager to win at Wembley, um, not Bob Stoke, but in Ken Knighton's case, it was Wembley Arena not Wembley Stadium, just over the road, when we won the Daily Express Five-A-Side Championships in 1979. The trophy of which, by the way, is on is on display in Quinsbar. Nice. Didn't mm. know that. Yeah. That's good to know. Yeah. <laughs> it was a big tournament, the Daily Express Five-A-Side Tournament. Uh, so is that, is that now. proper players? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It was proper players. Um, and it intense. was broadcast on the telly. But in, in those days, because we're going back to the in fact, it was November 79, we're going back to that sort of time, and this was long before that thing called the internet, long before those things called podcasts, long before mobile phones. And so people knew Sunderland were playing, but they didn't know how they'd gone on until they put the telly on about 10 o'clock at night, and there it was, and we worked through the early rounds, and we were winning, and we were winning, oh, doing all right. 
And then we played some team called Newcastle United in the semi-final and beat them 4-0. So is. everybody was over the moon. And then we played a, a Brighton in the final. Brighton included Mark Lawrenson, of course, well-known now from his match of the day work, and he's later playing for Liverpool. And uh, and we beat them. And over the course of the tournament, we scored 10 goals, didn't concede any. Kevin Arnott scored in every round. And as I say, it was a very prestigious tournament at the time because all the top teams took part. They'd played their best players, and it was really serious. And um, and Sunderland won it. And uh, so Ken Knighton is the last Sunderland manager to win at Wembley, as I say, albeit at Wembley Arena. That's However, nice little quirk of nice statistical history for Ken Knighton. Yeah, that's, mm-hmm. that's some as good As well as being there. a promotion winner in the same season. I'm going to bore everyone around me today with that story. Yeah. <laughs> well, tell me <laughs> to go into Quinn's Bar and find the trophy. And yes, before they tell me, I know it could do with a polish. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, before we get started, though, with the history of the club and <clears> you know, <throat> pick your brains about everything mm-hmm. you know about Sunderland, I just want to know kind of a few things about you. Obviously, mm-hmm. you're a Sunderland fan from mm-hmm. a kid. What was your first game? The first the first, first team game I came to was February the 18th, 1967. Um, I'd been to some youth team games before then. Uh, my dad brought with me. I was eight. Um, and before you do your maths, that means I've turned 60 this year. Um, so it was February the 18th, 1967. And we played Peterborough in the FA Cup fourth round. Um, we won 7-1. Um, all the goals were scored by Scotsman. And um, after 27 minutes, we were winning 4-0. And as, a, as an eight-year-old, I thought it was like that every week, of course. <laughs> Sadly, I waited 20 years um, to see us score seven again. And um, and then when we did score seven again, um, you know, we did it twice in three weeks. And oddly, one of those occasions was against Southend United, who sort of the playing at the moment. Yeah. Uh, what's your earliest memories of going to games? My earliest memory of going to game is bef- even before that game against Peterborough. It's twofold. Um, not quite going to a game, but get me interested in football. I didn't go to any of the games that were held in Sunderland for the 1966 World Cup. I wish my dad had taken me, but you know he didn't know I was even interested in football then because yeah. I, was, I was only little. But I remember the Italian fans in Fawcett Street going up and down Fawcett Street with the huge Italian flags and me thinking, what's going on here? Um, and then the following season, my dad started to tell me, I mentioned I went to youth team games beforehand and we went to the youth team games on a night. It was during the Youth Cup run when we won the FA Youth Cup for the first time in 67, 66, 67 season. And we went in the main stand. I mean, I was a roker ender all my life at first team games, but for, for these games, only the main stand was open, of course. And it was a night game. And as my dad walked me up the steps and I got to the top of the steps and the, pit, the players weren't even on the pitch but the pitch was flooded at Roker Park. And from the moment I got to those steps and st- saw the the full expanse of the beautiful surface of Roker Park, floodlit before the game had even started, before the teams had ever come out, that was where I was going to be. Is it? Do you feel, well, not sorry, maybe the right word, but people like me, I never got to go to Roker Park. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's, you know, a shame that a lot of people won't have experienced? Absolutely. There's a lot of, in, there's a lot of people who in their lives never move house. But a lot of people move house quite a few times. But your football ground is one that you generally, in many people's lifetime, never moved. So my dad, for instance, you know, started going to Roker Park in the in the nineteen forties and was still going. You know, he, he passed away not long after we moved to the stadium. Like he did come to the stadium alive. But basically, throughout his life, Roker Park had been a constant. Same with my mum. You know, Roker Park had been a constant. And although we've now been at the, the Stadium of Light since 1997, we haven't been here uh, anywhere near as long as the years I spent going to Rogel Park. So 
I, I went to Roker Park regularly and I was at not only every home game, I was at every home reserve game as well. And I was there for various other reasons. Any, any other event that was on there by and large for one reason or other, you know, I'd find myself there. Um, so I was there for longer than I've ever lived in any house, for instance. So it's, it literally is a, a home from home. And uh, as, as I mentioned, my regular spot, while I did sometimes have places in other parts of the ground, uh, I remember I once had a season ticket in the clock stand. And yes, I do have one of the old clock stand seats in my house. <laughs> um, when they knocked two thirds of the Roker end down for safety reasons in 1983, I was panicking. I wouldn't get into some games. So I bought a season. T Normally I couldn't afford a season ticket. <clears throat> but I bought a season ticket for the one area of the ground you could buy a standing season ticket at that time, which was in the clock in the main stand paddock. Um, but for most of my life, I would go in the Roker end. I was one of those stupid people that even though there'd been a cover on the Fulwell end since 1966 when it was put up for the World Cup, even if it was pouring with rain and all the sensible people, people all the sensible people would go in the Fulwell, being a creature of habit, I would always go to my regular <laughs> spot right at the back of the middle of the Roker end under the number 13, right behind the goal, but right at the back. And I can tell you to this day which games it was raining at Roker Park simply by looking at my programme collection <laughs> because on the days that it rained, my programmes for those games are very brittle because they were then dried out on the radiator yeah. when I got home. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> over the Roker We've all been there. Yeah. Um, how did you initially get involved with working at the club? Because obviously that's a, almost a dream job, but at that time almost I was started, a direct route. We started in 1986. No, it was simply at the end of the season one year. <clears throat> I think it was the end of the 84, 85, or it might have been the end of the 85, 86 season. There was a little, tiny little two-line snippet in the match programme at the end that said, has anybody got any ideas for next season's programme? So I wrote in with, and I had, I remember I had 27 ideas, and I wrote in with those 27 ideas, and I got a phone call from Alec King, who was the old commercial director at that time, inviting me down to a meeting in the summer. And I was thrilled a bit to be invited, because I mentioned to you just there now, you name it, I'd been to it at Roker Park, but I thought, as I went down to that meeting, um, I remember going down thinking, oh, this will be the only time in my life I ever go to a meeting at Roker Park. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm really chuffed a bit. And uh, when I got at the meeting, there was me, Alec, and a great chap called Patrick Conway, um, who had previously worked with Alex when Alec had been um, doing work at Grimsby Town and Patrick had worked for me at Grimsby Town. He'd been a, a young player at Grimsby Town, but he's now working up here. And he'd written for the programme at Grimsby. And um, the programme in those days was much smaller than the 100-page programme I was doing when um, I left the football club. Um, but in those days, it, I can't remember, it was 24, 30, 32 pages, something like that. So it wasn't you know, as big a programme as people are used to in the modern day. But at the end of that meeting, it ended up that Patrick was basically doing all the stuff on the visitors. Alec King was doing the adverts and the commercial stuff. And I basically came out of that meeting having been asked to write everything there was to write about it in Sunderland. So I started off. And um, it's a part-time role. Yeah, I was teaching. Um, I was I was an English teacher. I was an English teacher for twenty years. Five years after I started that, um, I became head of a department, and I was senior teacher. I was working as a visiting lecturer at the university. I was doing. I was running writers' classes for adults on the night. People who wanted to write, and in some cases, did have novels and short stories and poetry published. Um, you know, I was doing all of that, and I was I was doing my football writing on a night and, you know, as a getaway from all of me endless mm -hmm. English marking and me interviews with players, I tended to do um, 
on a Saturday after after a home game in the players' lounge at Roker Park. I would just have license to go in the players' lounge, which was down by the dressing rooms at Roker Park initially. The la- people who remember Roker Park later might remember the move the players' lounge upstairs. But when I started, the players' lounge was just down near the dressing rooms. And uh, I just used to go in there and introduce myself to people and do the interviews there. And very, very, very different world to the way it is now where you've got to go through umpteen hoops to get an interview with a player usually. So how, how is a, I mean, I know personally when I have interviewed players mm-hmm. that, you know, Julio Arco was in here and... Great he lad. Was, yeah, he was one of my favourites growing up. <clears throat> For you, how does how does that feel? Do you feel it's surreal? Do you just get on with it? Do you think about, you know, oh, I'm interviewing Niall yeah. Quinn right now? No, not at all. <clears throat> um, the only time, the, the only time I've ever been starstruck was Gary Rebel. And I actually sit next to Gary at the home games these days and have done for a long time. <laughs> but when Gary Rowell came on the scene, on the press scene, um, he'd been there about six weeks, about six, seven games before I even said hello to him, even though on one occasion I'd shared a car journey with him when we dropped Gary Rowell and somebody else off at a railway station on the way back from an away game. And I still hadn't thought, oh, who's Gary Rowell? <laughs> um, uh, in, in due course, as I got to know Gary, I found that he's just like you or me. He's a Sunderland supporter, absolutely through and through, red and white to the core. It's just like in my previous life, I happened to be a teacher. In Gary's previous life, he happened to be one of only three men to score 100 goals for Sunderland since the war. And two of them were hat-tricks. The one everybody always knows, February the 24th, 79, away in Newcastle, when he also set up the other goal for Wayne Entwistle. And I might have had, might have, would have had another goal if he hadn't been chopped down by John Bird when he was clean <laughs> through in the days before he got a red card for such a foul. Um... But he also scored a hat-trick in the top division against Arsenal in a 3-0 win, which should always be remembered as well. And uh, a great, great lad. But no, I've interviewed loads of players. Um, the players I've most enjoyed interviewing are the ones from before my time. You know, I, I interviewed two members of the 1937 FA Cup winning team, namely Johnny Mapson, the goalkeeper, and Bobby Gurney, Sunderland's all-time record goal scorer. Incidentally, Bobby Gurney's the only footballer I've ever met who've ever said, can I have my photograph taken with you, please? <laughs> um, none of the other football I mean I've had me fo- picture taken with other players as like part of a group and I've been roped in and I haven't yeah. really wanted to um, but Bobby Gurney was the only player I ever said you know did the fan thing um, and said can I have me photo taken with you so I was thrilled to meet to, bit, to bits to meet Bobby Gurney and I first met him when I did an article on him for the 1992 FA Cup final programme I did a couple of articles in that programme and it was through a very very dear friend of mine George Foster the man everybody knows and if they don't know, they should know. Uh, great fella, of course, the chairman of the Supporters Association. And it was George who put me in touch with Bobby Gurney back in 1992. And I went up to Bobby's house near the board inn. And what a uh, what a tremendous man. Quite apart from the fact he was... I mean, I could bore you all day with the stats of Bobby Gurney's yeah. career. I don't need to do that. People can look it up. <laughs> um, suffice to say, he's the top scorer in Sunderland's history with 228 goals. And uh, what a down-to-earth... He's you know, a bloke from Silksworth. What a down-to-earth, humble, genuine, couldn't do enough for anybody, man, you know. Brilliant, brilliant guy. And, and a, a fitting man to be Sunderland's top scorer in the history. Great bloke. Uh, finally, just on you, you've written some books. Mm-hmm. Um, how many have you written and which is your favourite? Um, <clears throat> I've written a lot of books. I've, <clears throat> I've written including kiddies' annuals, and I've done sort of 10, 11, 12 kiddies' annuals, and the annuals are aimed largely at children. Mm-hmm. Including them, I've written somewhere over 40 books on Sunderland. 
And now that I work as a freelance writer since I was made redundant at Sunderland, I write books in other clubs as well. So I've got two West Ham books coming out at the moment, which should be out any day. That'll take me tally of West Ham books up to five. The biggest one of which was I did the official West Ham farewell to the Bolin ground boot when they left their old... Why West Ham? Ground. Pardon? Why West Ham? Because I got asked to do them. Oh, right. I um, was a... I've done books on Ipswich Town. I've done books on Burnley. In the summer, I got asked to write uh, a Rush release. It was during the World Cup. I got asked to write a Rush release biography of Gareth Southgate. So that was 50,000 words in 10 days on top of various other commitments I had. That was a busy couple of weeks. Um so all together now, I, I, I think I've done 50 books. Um, in answer to what's the favourite, the favourite is always the next one. Fair. Yeah. <laughs> Good yeah. answer. Yeah. Because logically it should get better, shouldn't it? Your style should um, Well, the thing is, it's like, the thing is, when you do a book, there's normally a little passage of time, maybe a couple of months. Sometimes it's less. But there's normally a couple of months between you waving it bye-bye, having signed it off and said, yeah, that's it. Um, you know, I've done it. I've checked it. If there's any mistakes in it now, it's too late for me to see. Mm-hmm. You know, I've, I've done my best. Um, and then it comes out. And by the time it comes out, you've moved on to something else, you know. Yeah. So the, the favourite is always the next one, the one you're working on at the moment. Right. We're going to jump onto some Sunderland stuff. Mm-hmm. And I want to play a game of word association. So on, first Ira. word mm-hmm. that comes to you when I say <clears throat> a phrase or mm-hmm. word. So Roger Park. Love. Niall Quinn. Talent. The 1985 Cup Final. Lenasher. Rich Carter. Genius. Kevin Ball. Legend. Bobby Kerr. <laughs> uh, Bobby Kerr. Um, the Little General. Well, obviously, that's his nickname. Um, incidentally, I'm, I'm digressing for your quick game of word association, but it is an association. <laughs> he was called the Little General because before him, in midfield, we'd had the old England player. He played what I think he'd had one cap for England when he played for Burnley. I think it was against Poland shortly before the '66 World Cup, uh, and it was Gordon Harris who was known as the general. And then Bobby basically took over from when, I mean, Bobby was in the team with Gordon, mm-hmm. uh, but Bobby basically took over from, and then he was like dubbed the little general by Bob Stogo. Um, uh, Bobby Kerr, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, the words that come for Bobby Kerr are the same words that we used to describe Alan Ball when England won the World Cup in 1966, which was exactly the same kind of player. And those are two words, and they are perpetual motion. <laughs> Highlighted by the chant the fans had for Bobby Kerr, and don't panic, I'm not going to swear. I'm not going to swear. <laughs> but the chant for Bobby Kerr was, he's here, he's there, he's every dot, dot, dot where Bobby Kerr, because he never stopped running, just like Alan Ball. Ian Porterfield? Friend. James Allen? Originator. Laurie McMenemy. Um, he's the other manager I've just interviewed for this book. Have you? Yeah, I've just interviewed Laurie McMenemy. I expect, I'm sorry I'm breaking up your word no, association game. Um, <clears throat> That's why it exists. Um, Laurie McMenemy, I chose to do for this book because he's not really spoken about his time at Sunderland. I expect when people pick up the book and they see who the managers are, and can I just say as well, the other managers apart from, I've done Ken Knighton and Laurie McMenemy. Graham Anderson has done Peter Reid and Simon Grayson. And Lance Hardy has done Malcolm Crosby and Gus Poyet. They're the six managers we've sat down. And we sat down with each of them for two and a half, three and a half hours. And each of the chapters is, a, well, Graham's 
going to get a bit carried away with Peter Reed. His chapter's <laughs> about 24,000 words. But the idea was we split them between Roker Park managers and Stadium Alight managers, and Peter obviously bridged the two. Yeah. So the Peter Reed chapter is about 24, 25,000 words. The other chapters are about 12 to 15,000 words each. Um, but when I chose to do Laurie McMenemy, uh, I knew that most people, when they got the book or when they heard about the book, would curse and think, Laurie McMenemy, what are you doing him for? He was absolutely terrible and so on and so forth. And I'm not denying that. I'm not getting away from that at all. And I, I say it in the introduction to the chapter, I'm not about to rewrite history here or try to rewrite history. Nobody's making out anything was anything other than terrible under Laurie McMenemy. But lots of people, you know, younger people who just know the history but weren't there at the time, mm-hmm. know the stories of Laurie McMenemy. He was paid so much, questions were asked in the Houses of Parliament. You know, he took he left before we did get relegated to the third division for the first time, but he was responsible for it. Um, and then, infamously, he did a runner in the middle of the night, and he never really told that story. Um, even in his biography, which came out a couple of years ago, and it's quite an interesting biography, by the way. Um, the chapter on Sunderland's not very good; it's not very well researched. Um, it's written by a journalist from the Sun called Alex Montgomery, who's an, a long-time confidant of Laurie's. Um, it's mainly about his Southampton time and his mm-hmm. time elsewhere in the country. But I was keen, in my role as club historian, I see my role partly as getting people to tell their stories. Um, I mentioned to you before we started this, but I'll mention it now, that while when you asked me to come and be part of this podcast, and I agreed, you know, I took a little persuading. Yeah. It's not because I'm not willing to do anything, quite the reverse. I just tend to think, why do people want to hear from me? You know, I think I know, you know you've had some guests of high calibre on here and about to have some more of high calibre um, and I don't think that I'm in that league and I don't think that people should be that interested in, in stuff about me personally um, I see my role as getting other people to tell their stories and that includes the stories of people who people haven't heard very much yeah. from whether they're good or bad that's why I wanted to do Ken Knighton I said you know he was a manager who'd won something he'd done well but people didn't know much about him. His story's never really been out there. He's never really, he left football at the age of old. Ken Knighton left football after managing Orient following us. He left football at a very, very young age. He was managing Sunderland to a, tro- to a promotion um, when he was younger than John O'Shea was, when John O'Shea was still playing for us last season. But not many people know about him. Um, similarly, while everybody knows about Laurie McMenemy, they've never really heard his story. So I wanted him to tell his story. He took a bit of persuading. His friends, his friends, to be fair, it wasn't Laurie. Laurie was willing to do it when I rang him up. And I do do know Laurie. I've known Laurie for a few years, not many years. I've known him for a few years. Um, But when I rang him up and asked him to do the interview, he thought about it for a few days, a couple of weeks. And and his family and his friends had consistently said to him, don't do it. Don't do this interview. But he was prepared to do it, and he saw it as his chance to tell his story to Sunderland fans. And I will say that at numerous points in the chapter in the book, he does hold his hands up and say, look, I got it wrong, I tried, this is what I was trying to do, I got it wrong, it was all my fault. But he's also keen to make the point, which is a fair point, that just as if he's a blemish on Sunderland's history, Sunderland was a blemish on his CV because... He thinks it's unfair that people describe him as a five-minute wonder because he won the FA Cup with Southampton in 1976 when they were a second division side, three years after Sunderland won it as a second division side. Because he also took Southampton to the highest position they've ever had in the league, which was runners-up in the league to to Liverpool. 
He took them to a League Cup final. He took them into Europe. But what a lot of people forget on Avenue is previous to that, he'd managed Gateshead. Sorry, he'd, he'd been coach of Gateshead and they'd won the league. He'd been manager of Bishop Auckland and they'd won the league. He'd been manager of Doncaster Rovers, they'd won the league. And he'd been manager of Grimsby. He was manager of Grimsby before Doncaster, by the way. And they'd won the league. So he won the league with every team he managed. Bar Southampton, with whom he won the FA Cup and got to second other than mm -hmm. Liverpool. So he was a serial success everywhere he went, except at somewhere where he was a complete, utter and abject failure. So I hope people, when they see that book, read the lorry chapter. Um, I don't expect them to change their mind. I don't want them to change yeah. their mind about Laurie McMenny. I'm not in I'm not in the business of changing anybody's mind. I'm just putting the story out there and saying, this is this guy's point of view. Um, and I hope people find it compelling reading. So, yeah, Laurie McMenny, um, and he's well into his 80s now, Laurie, you know. So I think he sees this as his opportunity, you know, before he gets any older to yeah. say, to hold his hands up and, and apologise, which he does, for what went on at Sunderland but to actually be able to explain, you know, what was going on and, and why he was trying to do it and why what he tried to do at Southampton in particular in terms of bringing in older, big-name players just didn't work for him at Sunderland. Mick McCarthy? Uh, <laughs> uh, again, friend. Yeah, I, I mean, I know Mick well, you know, went on pre-season two. Did you ever think he was going to come back? Do you remember when the, nah. he came up here with his car on nah. the day the club got took over and nah. I was like, well, that's a bit suspicious. Nah, I he wasn't I'm just buying a car. I knew he wasn't coming back. <laughs> He's probably come up with Dave Bowman. Dave Bowman's been with him for years. Dave Bowman's from Berkeley. Um, last time I saw Dave was last time Mick was here. And at the time, Dave was Mick's director of football. But through the years, he was here with him as chief scout when he was at Sunderland. He was, he was basically his right-hand man, chief scout. I know he had Taff Evans on the coaching side, but in terms of recruiting players, young and old, um, Dave Bowman worked with him, you know, when he was at Ireland and stuff, long before he came to Sunderland. But Dave happens to be from Berkeley. And again, lovely fella, really well-connected fella, real expert on in terms of knowledge of players and not just the players who were already first-team players, but Dave will tell you all the best under-15s, under-16s, under-17s are in mm -hmm. the country, wherever they are, and beyond. Yeah. Peter Reid? Um... I, I'm doing really badly at this one word I know. association. Do you want one word for Reedy? Yeah. Laugh. Yeah. Ellis Short. Best forgotten. Arger. Talent. The Academy of Light. Um, the Academy of Light. Essential. Len Shackleton. If I said overrated, people would throw things at their computer or wherever they're listening to this on. Um, only overrated in the sense that we never would anything with Len. Brilliant player. My mom, one of my mum and dad's heroes. No question, one of the most talented players ever to put the boots on for Sunderland. But I went and interviewed a couple of years ago, members, I asked the Senior Supporters Association. This was for when Legion of Light was still going and mm -hmm. I was editing Legion of Light. And I went to the Senior Supporters Association and asked one of the best people you could ever meet and somebody I recommend you get as a guest on your podcast, uh, Malcolm Bramley, who is the secretary of the former players of this, sorry, of the Senior Supporters Association. You might think, why would you want Malcolm on? Well, when I tell you he's Brian Clough's secretary, when yeah, Brian was, was um, manager of Derby and Brian had taken him from Roker Park because Brian knew him from Roker Park because as a young boy, um, Malcolm was on the office staff at Roker Park and worked on things like the World Cup in 66 and so on. Um, but um, Malcolm sort of brought 
you know, work with Cluffy there. But anyway, I asked Malcolm Bramley, as the Secretary of the Senior Supporters Association, could he introduce me to the four of the oldest members of the Senior Supporters Association? And I sat down and interviewed them all, and I asked them all their favourite, asked them all who their favourite player was. In fact, I think there was about six people I spoke to, and I think five of five of the six said Shaq. And then when I asked them why, they told me, of course, everybody knows all the stories, all the things Shaq could mm-hmm. do, and so on. And then I asked them, as well as winning games, could could he lose them? And they would say, yeah, you know, he could. Some, Shaq played, Shaq played brilliantly whenever Shaq wanted to play brilliantly. He was known to play brilliantly every time we played Arsenal because they rejected him as a boy. Mm-hmm. He was known to play brilliantly against Newcastle. No bad thing because he previously played for them and he, he left them. He's, he's got a famous quote, hasn't he? He's got a very. He's got lots of very famous yeah. quotes. As, but yeah, it's the famous quote you're thinking of is the one about says, "I'm not bothered." You know, I'm not biased when it comes to Newcastle. I'm not bothered who beats them. Yeah. And bear in mind, this is the man who scored six goals on his Newcastle debut against Newport County in Newcastle's record ever win when they scored thirteen. Um. But. Shaq played when Shaq wanted to play. And I think you should always play for the team. Famously, he didn't get on with the centre-forward at the time, Trevor Ford, who suddenly had signed for a world yeah, record I've heard fee. This story before. And if you read Shaq's biography, you know, the main one, the Clown Prince of Soccer, <clears throat> and if you um, read Trevor Ford's biography, which if I remember rightly, it's called I Lead the Attack, um, <clears throat> neither of them liked each other. They famously wouldn't, they didn't get on. Famously, Shaq would play. Shaq, who could put balls on a sixpence, um, would. Um, sorry, for you younger people, a sixpence was a tiny <laughs> coin. Um, Shaq, Shaq, who could put balls on a sixpence, would famously slightly overhit or underhit passes to Trevor Ford, or put a little bit of backspin on them so he, Trevor Ford couldn't quite control it. Um, Shaq would be about the only man in the world who could put backspin on an old leather casey, by the way, but he could do it. <laughs> and um, Trevor Ford was the kind of fella who. Even though one game he played, I think it was, I think he'd broken his arm or something, or put his shoulder out. Trevor Ford stopped on because there was no subs in those days. Trevor Ford, Trevor Ford was the kind of guy who would stop on and give it, his, give it all. Uh, a little aside about Trevor Ford as well, by the way. On the day, a cricketing aside, on the day that Gary Sobers became the first man to score six sixes in one over off a bowler called Nash against Glamorgan, uh, Trevor Ford was on the field as Glamorgan's twelfth man at the mm. time. Not only allowed to fail, of course. Uh, but a little connection with Sunderland and yeah. the Six Sixes. Um, but I like a player who gives his all 100% of the time, every game. That's why my favourite players are not necessarily the players that people would say, well, he was the best player ever. Um, I, like, I like players who, no matter what they've got, even if they're not very good, you know what you're going to get from them. And they're going to play with a heart and soul the same as you would if you were given a chance mm-hmm. to play or I would if I was given a chance to play. Now, this sounds like I'm knocking one of the club's all-time great legends and I really, genuinely, honestly don't mean to be doing so. I'm not in any shape or form saying anything other than Shaq was a wonderful, wonderful player who many older players, uh, older, older supporters will tell you was the best thing ever to wear a red and white shirt. And if we put him on the pitch, there'd be 10,000 extra people on the game. All that would be true. All that would be true. But I would just like to think that Shaq played every time, not when he was in the mood. Alan Shearer? Um, <laughs> great goal scorer. Great goal scorer. Uh, you ever met him? I've, I've been as close to him as I am to you now, but I've chosen not to speak to him. Mm. You know, that's not, I'm not against everybody who plays for Newcastle. Um, 
He was, look, he was fantastic in Newcastle. He was absolutely fantastic. He was fantastic before he went to Newcastle. He was fantastic for England. He was a tremendous... Uh, when I'm talking about players giving it their all, yeah. hey, Alan Shearer gave it his all every time, whoever he was playing for, you know. Um, and I, and I'm, I'm not a Newcastle hater at all, um, as long as I realise they're only the second biggest team in the North East and they've never had as many league championships as Sunderland ever in their entire history. And their record crowd is nearly 7,000 fewer than Sunderland's record crowd, as long as you know they realise they're the second biggest team in the North East. Our biggest away win as well, aren't they? <clears throat> Sunderland's biggest away, biggest away win, uh, the 9-1, um, is also still the biggest away win in the top division in England. It has been equaled in the first division by Wolves at Cardiff in 1955, but given Cardiff's not in England, um, Sunderland's at Newcastle is the, <laughs> is the record ever top flight away win in England. Joint, as I say, overall with with the with Wolves winning Cardiff, but uh, you know, in terms of a first division win, um, so Sunderland's Newcastle United have every respect for. They're a great club. They have magnificent fans. Not all of them. I know they've got some new, you know, everyone does. <laughs> but Newcastle fans, excellent. I'm not saying anything against them at all. Um, and uh, you know, a really dear friend of mine who who passed away just under a year ago was for many years my counterpart in Newcastle, a gentleman called Paul Tully. Um, I used to watch every Sunday Newcastle game, sat next to Paul, and that would be first team or reserves or under-23s or whatever we want to call them these days. And in the case of the under-18 games, we'd watch them home and away, stand next to each other, keep each other right about who was doing what and what have you, and shake hands at the end of it. And um, he was a walk-and-talking encyclopedia on Newcastle. And there's another one at the moment called Paul Janow, who is Newcastle United's club historian. Who's, if you're interested in the fact that we're just coming up to the centenary of the end of the First World War and in this afternoon's programme against South End, I've written, I've not seen it yet, but I've written a, a substantial article about Sunderland players who passed away in the First World War. Paul's just brought out a book um, on called to the, glory, to the Glory of God, which is about the Newcastle United players who served in the First World War. And, in, and typically for a, for a historian of Paul's calibre, um, it's an outstanding read. So I'm not saying anything against Newcastle. Let's just say Alan Shearer is not my favourite. <laughs> Jimmy Montgomery. Um, my all-time hero. And finally, Charlie Hurley. Well, obviously, player of the century. Um, I ha- I- again, I-, I have a little anecdote on Charlie. I was really lucky in that when we did a pre-season two revival a few years ago when Quinny was in charge. Or seven. Uh, it would be that one, yeah. We had two or three trips to Ireland around that time. Um, but we one particular year, we decided to take Charlie with us as an ambassador. And um, not the worst job I've ever been given, I have to say. But as I was on that tour, I was designated as the man to look after Charlie because <laughs> they all said, well, Rob, you can talk to me. You know all these, you know what he did and so on. And saw him play. So wherever we went, I went with Charlie and we were sponsored by, I think it was Aer Lingus, who provided us a plane. So on all the plane journeys between the different bits, I was, designed, I was assigned to sit next to Charlie and take him off and what have you. And one particular night, um, Quinny and Charlie were off out somewhere and I was going out with a couple of friends of mine, other media people from the club. And Quinny said, where are you going? And I can't remember where we're going. I said, we're going to such and such a bar. And he says, right, I'll pick you up later. And it got to about 11 o'clock and we thought, well, he's obviously forgotten. And it was after 11 and the phone rings. And it's Quinny, where are you? We said, where we said, right, I'll be there in 10 minutes. So Quinny turns up. Fleeted taxis, sounding familiar. It wasn't coming back from the, <laughs> the Cardiff game from Bristol Airport. But there's Quinny in the fleet of taxis for us, you know, two or three. And he took us off 
we were in the taxi for ages and he took us off to Blarney. And we ended up in this pub in Blarney where there were hundreds of people, felt like hundreds, certainly a couple of hundred people in this pub. And we ended up, um, Charlie was there, of course, Quinny. And it was it was like this scene, it was really late at night and everybody had a skin full. And the fashion was um, for somebody to get up on the on a chair and sing a song unaccompanied mm -hmm. while the rest of the people there would, you could hear a pin drop, you know, everybody was very respectful and would listen to the song and if they knew the chorus, when they all knew all the choruses, would join in. And at the end of the person singing the song, the fashion was that the person who just sung the song would say, I call upon and then name somebody to come and sing. And that, that person had to go up and sing the song. This went on for some time. And but Quinny had set a plant. And at some point in the middle of the evening, somebody who sang said, I call upon Rob Mason to sing the song. Well, honestly, my heart sunk because I cannot sing. <laughs> you know, I cannot sing. I mean, I, I, there's a story I could tell you about how I can't sing, but I'll spare you that one. But it stems from the days when I was in Rye St. Paul's choir as a boy with Richie Pitt, by the way. I was in the choir with Richie Pitt. Before Richie got in the first team, obviously, a member of Sunderland's Cup final team, I was in the same class at school as Richie's brother, David, his younger brother. And uh, I used to live a couple of streets away from Richie. So I used to come to the match with Richie before he was in the first team. You know, we'd go back a long way. <laughs> um, but um, this was this was a dread. So I, I ended up with a couple of people helping me out. We did a, the world's worst ever rendition of the Lampton Worm. <laughs> but, um, yeah, all that, all that comes back to me in a, in a haze of <laughs> horror. The fact I was asked to sing, but yeah, comes back to Quinny and Charlie. And obviously, I did see Charlie play, he was absolutely fantastic. He was, you know, a ball playing centre half before you had ball playing centre half. He fit in today's game. Oh, he'd be but Charlie could fit into any game, yeah, you know. And a couple of years ago, when we brought when we moved up the Charlie Hurley Gates, you know, you might be yeah, yeah. a game against Hull City, it was the day the lights went out, and again, not the a worst job of Sunderland Premier League, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and um. Uh, again, not the worst job I was ever given. When we got the 64 team back together and they nearly all were there, I, again, I was asked, would I look after them? Not the worst job I've ever had. And so I sat and had lunch with them all. I made a beeline for Martin Harvey that day because I'd met and interviewed Martin before a couple of times, but he was the member of that team I'd had the least to do with. Um, but um, up in the boardroom after the game, Martin Bain was sort of trying to make a speech. And... Um, couldn't get a couple of words out till Charlie just took over, held court as Charlie would, you know, <laughs> explained how he was getting on a bit. But, you know, if I remember right, I think Charlie said something along, I can't remember word for word, but he said something's in the boardroom. He said something along the lines of, um, you know, he wasn't going to be on this world for that much longer. He was, you know, he was in his day 80s now, he was getting on. Um, but once he, once he went up to that great football pitch in the sky, he would be the captain of the team there as well. And, you know, God would have to be the vice captain, something like that, you know. <laughs> um, and of course, it was all tongue in cheek, you know. But um, Charlie had presence, he had, and he still does have presence. He had presence on the pitch and he had presence off the pitch. And the players who played with Charlie Hurley, I, I count myself very fortunate to count a lot of that 64 team now as, as good friends of mine. Um, and every single one of them, it, all of them, absolutely idolised Charlie and what he did for them as a captain, you know. And I think possibly Charlie's best attribute was his captaincy and how he got the best out of everybody else and, and simultaneously led by example. 
Right, we've got some questions to go through go now. Uh, so, obviously, you've worked for the club for many years, but mm-hmm. what's the biggest change you've noticed in that time from when you first walked through for that board meeting you were talking about to now? What's the difference? Oh, that's a great question. Um, obvious difference is like, you know, we were in a. I loved Roker Park, as I mentioned earlier, but it was a ramshackle ground that was dropping to bits and couldn't really be significantly improved. Um, to now, you know, we've got this. People. I think take for granted to some extent what a fabulous stadium that we've got these days. You know, especially now it's got red seats, well, red uh, and white seats. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> look, don't get too carried away about the seats. Well done to everybody who's, who's been <laughs> contributing towards changing the seats. Um, I want to see the day when nobody notices the colour of the seats because there's none empty, yeah. and the crowd, the, the the ground, the team are doing well enough that it fills every seat in the ground, and people can't get a ticket because and we, we talk about expanding the ground again. Um, <clears throat> But the ground itself is absolutely fabulous. No matter where you sit, you've got a good view. You've got good facilities. Um, you know, it was the biggest and best football ground built in England in the second half of the 20th century. Um, it's the envy of many other teams. Um, it is a ground that is um, superb in 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 so many ways that people perhaps don't really fully appreciate certainly them but appreciated more if they had coped with the lack of facilities mm-hmm. that were there at Roker Park. Um, other big changes, of course, is the amount of money that's coming into the game, the amount of overseas players that's coming into the game. Um, I'm delighted that we've got a good few local lads in the team at the moment, but there's been a spell in the last two or three years when the local lads have been, you know, Lee Catamore from Stockton. And then lads who maybe come from Manchester or something, you're looking at them as your local lads. You yeah. Know? You, you know, I think you need a nucleus in your team, a nucleus in your team who've grown up with red and white blood, you know, and understand what the club's about. I'm not saying you can't get that from outside the area. Some people who very much got that. Borley. Borley is a classic example. Len Ashurst, Gary Bennett, Gary Bennett brought to the club by Len yeah. Ashurst, incidentally, are all examples of people who are Sunderland through and through, who still live in or near Sunderland now and have done for, for many years. Um, so I'm not saying you can't get that from coming from outside the area, quite the, quite the reverse. I'm not of that opinion at all. But I do like to have a nucleus of young of, of, of local lads in the team. And, of course, you look at Sunderland's very successful teams in the past and they've always had a nucleus of, of, of local lads and often, uh, often a, a nucleus of Scots as well. And it's great that we've got a Scottish manager at the minute. Yeah. And it's great that we've got a Scottish influence. Traditionally, going back to the very early days of the club, um, that 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 all that all fits nicely in my mind. And if you just look at the 1973 Cup final team, for instance, you know, the captain was a Scot, the goal scorer was a Scot, the man who took the corner was a Scot, the man who got the corner was a Scot. And the and also the opposition um leads in the days when you only had one sub, everybody thought that the you know, the pre-match talk was all about how Eddie Gray would win the game for Leeds. And Eddie Gray was the one man that was taken off and the man that was marking him was another Scot. It's funny, mm. Sunderland's always had that link with Scotland and Ireland in of modern course. years as well. In, in modern years, Ireland, but from the early years, so, I mean, we, we, you mentioned James Allen earlier, clearly, you know, that the club was founded by a Scotsman. And in the early days, the team of all the talents that won the league three times out of four and were runners-up in the other season, you know, they were nearly all Scots. A different world, of course. But yeah. what I'm saying is from a historical point of view, there's always been a strong Scottish influence. And I'm, I'm for one, um, I'm pleased to see that now. Uh, a little bit of that is, I have to admit, it's because I live in Scotland myself now, so <laughs> I, I like to see that, yeah. 
yeah. an honorary Scot. Yeah, um, I wouldn't go that far, but you know, I've, I've always I've always liked Scotland. Um, what do you think is the most well the best thing or the most notable thing that you've done for the club? Well, for yourself, but you know, with the club. Um, was it a piece of work you're proudest of, or the only the only thing I would say is what I've tried to do and what I still do try to do is to get other people to tell their stories for Sunderland supporters. And I, I and I also constantly try and promote Sunderland. I try and promote Sunderland in a positive light. I try and promote Sunderland supporters in a positive light. Um, I won't have it when I have people inside the club who are <clears throat> not from Sunderland, who are sometimes disparaging about Sunderland. I've had a few stand-up rows people in the past and put one or two people in their place about things that have been said behind closed doors about Sunderland supporters. I've torn one or two heads off, if I'm honest. Mm-hmm. I'm not having that. I'm of the same opinion that Bob Murray's Sunderland supporters are the best supporters going. Athletical Bill Bow and Sevilla. We were talking about this before we mm-hmm. came on here, so I've, I've slotted in there right, because I think okay. it's going to be an interesting right. story. So do you want to rehash? Well, just a little bit of what I was saying to you earlier, Connor, simply because I'm meeting this guy this afternoon, uh, hoping to meet this, meet this guy this afternoon, is... Um, for a long time, Sunderland were um, were thought to be a guy called Arthur Pentland uh, was was thought to be the man behind the creation of Athletic Bilbao. And many many years ago, I'll have written things. People can dig out articles of things I wrote twenty five, thirty years ago that would have said exactly that. And a few years ago, about a decade ago ish, um, I tried to sort of look into this, and I couldn't really establish much. And what I could find was that if Arthur Pendleland had played much of a role in the foundation of Athletic Bilbao, it had been a peripheral one. He certainly wasn't. He certainly wasn't Arthur um, Athletic Bilbao's equivalent to James Allen for us, put it that way. But what I did discover, um, through the help of a lovely lady who's not a football person at all, but is involved in the Southwick histor- historical group, a lady called Pam Tate, who I knew of through stuff I've done outside of football, because I have a general interest in local history anyway, which comes back to what I was saying a moment ago about trying to promote Sunderland as a place and, mm-hmm. and what have you. Um, she put me onto this. And the, the, there was um, a couple of old shipbuilders called um, McCall and Pollock who worked up at Southwick. One was a wayside and one was a Scot again. And they'd gone out to Seville and they were largely responsible for setting up Seville, who were the second oldest club in Spain. And originally, Seville had been a, um, a rowing and football club. And I had some really old photographs. Again, I printed these in Legion Light several years ago mm-hmm. now. I think I might have printed them in the programme as well. Um, of some really old pictures of the early Seville, and they're all there with their own boats and stuff, and it's the Seville Rowing Football Club. And I didn't know this. I went to Seville a few years ago when Sunderland played a pre-season friendly there. Friendly best remembered for the fact that Kevin Phillips was absolutely whacked from behind for about eight minutes. It was friendly. I thought, oh, welcome to Spanish football then. Not taking any prisoners here. Um, but um, <clears throat> it turns out that Seville owe their existence to these two guys. And Seville, you know, play in white with red edging. But if you look at the Seville badge, there's red and white stripes on the badge, yeah. and that stems from there, I believe. And a few years ago, when Seville were marking a particular anniversary, about a few years, four or five years ago, Seville were marking a particular anniversary um, through entirely through email. I had um, quite extensive contact with a group of um, official Seville historians and um, and helped them with that and sent them a few pictures of early Sunderland and so on. And the Seville's own sort of website people did a, a, a little sort of, well, I say it was little, it was about an hour long documentary about their, 
the origins, which they sent me with a little note saying or minute 18 mm-hmm. or whatever minute it was. There's a bit, and there was two or three minutes on there where they were showing pictures of sort of early Sunderland players and talking about, you know, the connections between Sunderland and Seville. And I have this Spanish uh, journalist who's coming to see me this afternoon to talk a little bit about those links of Sunderland and Seville, which is why I mentioned it to you earlier. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Is there a part of our history that doesn't get enough recognition? Again, a good question. Um, I think in Sunderland, in Sunderland and in the North East, people generally understand how big Sunderland are as a club. Outside the northeast, people have got no idea these days. This is why I keep trying to promote Sunderland the place and Sunderland the people and Sunderland the club. The club is just a manifestation of the place and the people. The people are supported. And Bob Murray thinks that. That's why outside the main stand of the stadium alight, the the statue with pride of place is the fan statue. And it's why the fan statue includes a man and a woman and a child. Yeah, family. It's a family. Yeah, and it's inclusive. It's 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 everybody. But I play a little game with myself in that. You had your word association game earlier. My little game is whenever somebody comes to Sunderland as a manager or as a chairman, in the modern days chairman, because obviously in past it's always been somebody from the northeast. But manager certainly is. I wait to see how long it is until they come out with a line that says something along the lines of. I knew Sunderland was a big club, but I never knew how big. Jack Ross said the same thing, didn't he? They always say it. He's just the latest to say it. They all say it, right? Um, and that's because when people come into the club, they suddenly get dawns on them. Well, we knew Sunderland was a big club, but we didn't know how big. I mean, look at the gates now with the third division. You know, you can't get a ticket for love and money for away games. Yeah. You know, even if they're on the telly or what, the, you know, the, the checker trade trophy or Morecambe and whatever, you, you know. That doesn't surprise me. It probably doesn't surprise you. It probably doesn't surprise people listening to this podcast. But other people don't really, outside Sunderland, yeah. don't really know how big Sunderland is. And that's a tragedy because when I was born, and I'm showing my age again, <laughs> when I was born, and I was born in March 58, at that point Sunderland had never played anywhere outside the first division. When Sunderland won the last, last won the league in 1936, in the same year Blackburn Rovers and Aston Villa were relegated, they were both founder members of the league. They were the last founder members to drop out of the league. Sunderland, as you may know, were the first team to join the league after the founder members, two years after the start. So from 36, at that point, Sunderland had had as many league championships to their name as anyone, jointly with Aston Villa. There's still, to this day, only five teams won the league more times than Sunderland. Yeah. And yet, for over two decades, from being league champions in '36 for the sixth time, for over two decades, Sunderland proudly boasted the only club never to play anywhere but the first division. The first division, by which I mean, what you what what in modern days is called that thing called the Premier League, or as my favourite journalist Brian Glanville calls it, the greed is good league. <laughs> yeah, um, but back in those days, nobody needed telling how big a club Sunderland were. Everybody knew. Now it's passed down through father to son, mother to daughter, generation to generation. And at some point, it may well be after my lifetime, people will know how big Sunderland should be again. One of the most contentious topics when talking mm-hmm. about the history of a club, mm-hmm. well, some supporters, mm-hmm. is the formation date. Yeah. So you will have heard this before. Some mm-hmm. argue that there's no evidence mm-hmm. of the 1879 date mm-hmm. and some say it's 
Eeny. I mean, where, yeah. where do you stand on that? <clears throat> uh, well, it's a really interesting debate, and I am always absolutely um, delighted when people are interested in something from so long ago. Yeah. Because generally, people are just interested in what's going on now or what's gone on recently. So when people are interested in stuff from the past, whether it's the 50s, the 30s, the, 20, the 20s, which is the great forgotten decade for something, because we didn't win anything in the 20s, but we had five seasons where for four seasons out of five, we were in the top three in the top division. Um, or really the early days, the very, very early days. Um, when, when I do get people who are interested in that, I'm, I'm fascinated and, and keen to talk to them because not very many people are interested in that, but those that are interested tend to have a deep interest. So with specific recourse to the beginnings of the club, um, somebody I've known for years and, and, and I've been a friend of for years, though I haven't seen him for a, a good while, especially with not living in Sunderland now, is, uh, is Paul Days. And Paul provided this piece of information about the date, I think off the top of my head, I think it was 25th of September, 1880, 27th, I've got here. Yeah, okay, well, a date when yeah. there was, uh, you know, it was, it was announced formally that um, Sunderland were becoming a football club. And it's a fascinating thing. It was a good friend of mine, Mike Gibson, who I've done a couple of books with, together with I called Barry Jackson. Uh, we did the Sunderland Complete Record book. Um, Mike has, has used this sort of, I think it's the British newspaper archive where you can quickly mm -hmm. search things online these days. Mike had actually made me aware of this this date a couple of years, no, not a couple of years, maybe about 18 months earlier. So we were aware of it. We knew it was a key date. Um, but Paul had brought this um, to everybody's attention and it was excellent. And I invited Paul in to Black Cat House where I was working full-time at the time, um, had a chat to Paul, um, took his photograph, um, printed the story in the Legion of Light and printed pretty much the same version of the story mm -hmm in the programme with, I think in both articles, certainly in one, I remember printing the picture of Paul holding up the document um, and sort of acknowledged that was a key date in someone's history. But for me, where the interesting thing lies is this was a date when Sunderland Football Club officially announced to the world that they were a football club. Um, and the, re the driver for that was there'd been an advert in a newspaper, off again, off the top of my head, I think it was the Athletic News, a few days before that announced a new trophy called the Durham Challenge Cup. The teams were being uh, invited to um, apply for. And so Sunderland announced themselves as a club because they were going to enter this competition. Obviously, it was a very, very early days of football. Um, but I don't think that, having seen this newspaper advert saying, we've got a new competition in a new sport, that a matter of two or three of days later or a week later or whenever, you're suddenly in a position to say, let's put a team into this sport we've never heard of and we never we, we don't know how and we don't know how to play. Something had gone on before that. It's a bit like it's a bit like um where the River Weir. The River Weir announces itself to the world when it comes out of Weirmouth and heads into the North Sea, but it starts off up in, in Weirdale. You know, that's the beginning of the river. If you get married, you get married and you announce your relationship to the world on the day you both say I do and put rings on your mm -hmm. fingers. But where does the relationship start? Starts does it start when you start going out? Start when you see your future partner across the room and think, you know, mm -hmm. I fancy him or I fancy her. Where does it start? So James Allen 
we know as the founder of the football club. We know James Allen brings a round ball back from Scotland where football is more popular in those early days than it is in the northeast of England. We know he introduces it to the schools in Sunderland he's working at. There's various documentation that talks about Sunderland Football Club really just starting as a game for the amusement of the school teachers. And I think if you know your early history of Sunderland, you know we originally were the Sunderland district teachers. Mm -hmm. um, so it starts from there. Um, what particularly interests me is that in the first 15 or 20 years of the football club's existence, there are numerous occasions when various newspapers, periodicals and books write articles about the formation of Sunderland Football Club and they talk about Sunderland Football Club being formed in 1879, in October 1879, in what was then called the British Day School. The building still stands. It's the Norfolk Hotel. I have a blue plaque on it from the days when I got blue plaques put up on places of interest with regard to Sunderland Football Club, old grounds or whatever. Yeah. Um, and at this point, when these articles appeared over the first 15 or 20, 10, 15, 20 years of the football club, saying the club was formed in 1879, nobody at that time, bear in mind the people who were reading this were all people who were there at the time and would know. Mm -hmm. Nobody ever writes in to say, Oh, actually, you've made a mistake. It wasn't 1879, it was 1880. Um, I wrote an article which went on the club website last March, um, which people can find because this is a long, you know, if, you're, if you are interested in this, it's a, it's a long and, and increasingly complicated debate looking at things from many, many years ago. But if you look at the club's website and you find the history section, you'll find an article there called Beginnings, which together with Mike Gibson, um, I wrote and looked at this debate in as much depth as I could. Um, and it explains there that it does acknowledge this 1880 date is a key date. It does acknowledge the fine work Paul Dears has done in bringing this to everybody's attention. Um, but it also tries to explain why this isn't the beginning of the river. That might, if you like, be the mouth of the river, using the analogy I used earlier. But the actual start of the club, when you look at the beginnings, of the club that you, you look right back to the very beginning um that's where it starts from so the club the club's view and my view is that while we acknowledge the september 1880 is a really important date in the club's history it doesn't change our view on when the club started and we don't think that 14 decades after the beginnings of the club that we should change the date of the very beginning of the club. Um, because as I say, I think the beginning of the river was further than when it was actually announced. You wouldn't just come along and say, you know, we've, we've seen this advert for a new competition, a new sport we've never heard of, right, we're ready to play. Yeah. You, you know, you've been practicing, you've been developing an interest in this sport. And in terms of having early documentation of that, well, if there was any, it's been long. I mean, if, I don't know if you've ever moved house, but you do lose things when you move house. Mm -hmm. Some of them have moved house eight times since then. So if there was ever any documentation, it's long since been lost. There might not have been any documentation in the first place because, you know, when you start doing something with your mates, which is what it was in the yeah. first place, you don't write down everything you do with your mates. Do you? It's only when it develops to such and such a stage you think, right, well, it's like if you, if you start a rock band or a band in any shape or form, at some point you play your first gig. Yeah, but you don't play your first gig the day you decide you're going to have a rock band. Do you? You've been practicing and learn how to play your instruments and getting together with a few mates and learn how to play a few songs before you ever put yourself in front of the public. 
what can you tell us about Bob Kyle? He's the club's longest serving manager, uh, 23 years. Yeah, Bob I'll Kyle. Honest, I know nothing about him. Well, Bob Kyle was manager of Sunderland from 1905 to 1928. Um, obviously, he was manager in the most successful year in the club's history, 1912-13, when we won the league and got to the FA Cup final. Um, before that, he'd been manager of Distillery. Um, he was a. It was in a days when, the, as manager of the club, it wasn't so much the way you'd be a manager now. You'd be less of, if you like, a tracksuit manager. You'd be more of an administrator, more of a sec- secretary kind of role. To manager of the club. Manager of the club. Yeah, manager of the club, that's a good way of putting it. But he'd also be manager of the team, but in a different sense. I mean, back in those days, it was it was for any club, it wasn't... I mean, the idea of coaching is a really sort of a... is, um, is something that's got more and more prominent as more and more years have gone. And now you've got umpteen coaches at every football club and they've all got, you know, their A licence or their Pro licence or the UEFA B licence or whichever licence they've, 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 they've had to have um, and work their way through their badges. But at this particular time, it was more a case of putting players out on the pitch, getting good players who knew what they were doing, not telling them how to play, just putting them on the pitch. Even in a more, in my lifetime, when Manchester United became the first English team to win the European, European Cup in 1968, famously, Matt Busby, their manager, wouldn't particularly coach them because he didn't need to coach them. He would just say, go out and play, boys. And bear in mind, he had three different European footballers of the year in that team in Bobby Charlton, incidentally, my favourite ever non Sunderland player. From Ashen. Uh, from Niami. Pardon? He's from Niami. Uh, yeah, brilliant. Um, I, I've, I've been lucky enough to interview Bobby Charlton a couple of times. And I first met him when I was 12 and he opened Bar's Pop Factory in Ryup. <laughs> and I had a, a broken leg at the time, broken through playing football. I had a chalk on the length of my leg. He signed me choke and still nestling in a little bit of a carrier bag somewhere all the way back from night, rotting away from 1970. He's me a little bit of choke with Bobby Charlton's autograph on. Uh, but he had Dennis Law, Georgie Best and Bobby Charlton as three European footballs. He had a cracking team, you know, bloke called Pat, Pat Crerand was known as the man who made Man United tick. But with players like that, um, it wasn't a case of going out and rigidly coaching mm-hmm. them. They were just good players. And that stemmed from the early years of the of the game where it was more about getting good players on the pitch and letting them play. I'm not saying there was absolutely no structure to the game at all. Quite, the, you know, I'm not saying that at all. Yeah. But phenomenally less than there would be now. So Bob Kyle managed us through those years. Um, I, I'm, as club historian, I'm lucky in that every now and then people get in touch with me to tell me they've got particular things. And mm-hmm. um, Three or four years ago, might have been a little bit more, but I think it was about three or four years ago, a gentleman from not far from the Blue Bell in Fulwell got in touch with me to see he had a couple of items belonging to Bob Kyle. One was like a, a, a plaque, like a little, sort of a bit like a sheriff's badge, if you mm-hmm. like. Um, and one was a little clock, um, about eight inches high, um, which had been gifts to him. One had been a gift to him from distillery when he'd left to come and manage Sunderland. Um, and um, one was a clock for long service at Roker Park which he gave me. And they're on display in the foyer at the stadium light as well now. And another little thing about Bob Kyle that people might not realise is he, is, he he remains the last manager from Northern Ireland to lead a team to win the top division. The nearest we've had since is when Brendan Rodgers, I think, got Liverpool to second. Yeah. Um, but Bob Kyle's the last man from Northern Ireland to manage a team to win the English top division. Did not know that. Mm. Uh, Fountain of knowledge. Mm. Um, I want to talk to you about sort of the identity 
of Sunderland as, mm-hmm. as a you know the playing squad in a mm-hmm. sense mm-hmm. and I look back at times where Sunderland's been in my lifetime good and mm-hmm. it's always been similar mm-hmm. the Reed days was honest hard work and 4-4-2 wingers down the side nothing wrong workers. with that yeah general nothing wrong with that hard workers in the middle and then I look at when Roy Keane was here yeah. and Mick McCarthy had that yeah. little bit of success again same sorts of teams mm-hmm. and then whenever we stray away from yeah. that identity when yeah. we bring in too many foreign bodies and mm-hmm. I, I don't want to sound like you know foreigners are mm-hmm. bad or whatnot but mm-hmm. it seems to me when they change their identity Sunderland doesn't do well I mm-hmm. don't know is that just me connecting dots that aren't really there or do you think there's know, merit to that everybody's entitled to their opinion and you, 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 you're obviously very open minded in that. and I talked earlier about wanting a nucleus of yeah. Sunderland lads and liking Scots in the team and likewise I hasten to what I've got I've got no against having anybody from anywhere in the world in the team. Some of my favourite players, Stefan Sessegnon. What a all, player. All, well, he's not mine. Not mine at all. I used to love watching I think he's about. the most overrated thing I've ever seen in the Sunderland show. <gasps> we'll talk about Stefan Sessegnon in a minute, <laughs> shall we? Um, as you see, Stanley Joe at the club, um, my lack of um, favour with Stefan Sessegnon. Um, That's possibly because he was a pain in the backside when I wanted to get an interview at him, but it didn't help. Um <laughs> But I'm not bothered where anybody's from. All I'm interested in is, one, do they want to play for Sunderland? That's the most important thing. And B, are they good enough to play for Sunderland? If you, wherever you were from, if you want to be out there, if you're desperate to be out there and play for Sunderland, that's good enough for me. Secondly, if you're then a good player, that's even better. But for me, I'd rather have the number one attribute than the second attribute. Mm -hmm. You know, Kevin Kyle wasn't everybody's cup of tea. I loved Kyler, you know. Could tell you what, if you were centre half, you knew you'd been in a game against Kevin Kyle. And if you're the man playing up front alongside him, you were thinking, happy days, I'm going to get loads of bits and pieces. Yeah. You know, uh, not everybody's cup of tea. I'm not saying he was a good player. Did have 10 caps for Scotland, by the way. And I know people think Scottish football is not very it was good. It his injury that It didn't Kyle, help him. Yeah. yeah, Kyle had a number of injuries, partly yeah. the way he played and the way he went on. But also, by the way, a cracking lad. And the year Kevin Phillips scored 30 for Sunderland. Kevin Kyle scored 30 for Sunderland as well in the youth team in reserves. Um, good player. Just give you the like, Stefan Sessignon thing. I know Stefan Sessignon was, you know, a fan's hero and the fans loved him. I thought he was overrated. Um, I didn't like the fact that he dived. He was a right he diver. A diver. I don't like people diving. You're talking about Sunderland's identity. I don't like people diving. I don't like people diving. I like people like Kevin Ball who go and wipe people out. I know you kind of do that in the modern game. I know you yeah. get sent off. Like you, you tackle people in the... <laughs> no, Picks Katz, up one book in the game. Katz is, Katz is born the wrong generation. If Katz had been playing in the 70s, he would have been playing for England, I think. Um, and he did captain England at under-21 yeah, level. In fact, we played at Doncaster the night. I remember going down to Doncaster to see Katz captain England under-21s against Greece. Um, but... I like I like Sunderland, and this really ties in your identity question in a way, and your Stefan Sessignon comment is that I like Sunderland players to give it their all. I like them to be hard but fair. I don't like cheats. I criticise players who cheat against us. I can't criticise. I'm not a hypocrite. I can't criticise players who cheat against us and dive against us, and then say, "Oh, it's all right that when our player dives." Yeah. Stefan Sessegnon was a diver. That was the first reason I didn't like him. Second reason I didn't like him was for a long time we tried to build our team around Stefan Sessegnon. The whole team was set up to get the best out of Stefan Sessegnon. So O'Neill, wasn't it? Pretty much built a team around him. I can't, I'm, I'm better on ancient history than I am on recent history. I think it's something to do with my age. You know, you remember what you're doing 
30 years ago and not mm-hmm. what you're doing three minutes ago. Um, but I think that season the team was built around him and you only scored seven goals. You're not that good if a team's built around you and you score seven goals. When it comes to being a pain in the backside off the pitch, I remember one day trying to get an interview with him <clears throat> and he was desperately pretending he couldn't speak English. Well, I knew he could. <laughs> but he was desperately... Anyway, it was when Eric Black was was um, assistant manager. Great fella, Eric Black. And um, I've actually just written to me about Eric Black this week because I mentioned earlier I do stuff for different clubs and one of the clubs these days, I write the program, I write about 25 pages of Coventry City's programme and uh, for their programme... Um, next for next week's Coventry program, they play at home to Wackerington Stanley next week, and I'm do I do a series on um, it's called Sky Blue Supremos, where I talk about um, managers mm-hmm. uh, going right back to the very early days of Coventry's managers, not, not just the modern ones. Uh, and Eric Black was manager of Coventry at one point, and um, so I've just featured him, just been writing about him. Uh, I also do stuff for Lincoln City, Bradford City and my local club, Stranra, when it comes to football programme stuff, as well as still writing stuff for Sunderland. Um, but I went and got Eric Black and I said, Eric, can you help me out? Explain what had happened. Well, Eric was a brilliant fella. And within five minutes, Eric had gone and got Stefan Sassignon out of the dressing room, sat him down in front of me. And I, conti- I just asked all my questions in English. Eric translated them into French. Stefan answered him in French. Eric translated them back into English for me. And we did the interview satisfactorily. You know, um, that was an example of a member of the coaching staff, or in this case, the assistant manager, being particularly helpful and a player being particularly unhelpful. I have to say that over the years, the occasions when players have been particularly unhelpful have been, thankfully, extremely small. Generally, players have been really, really good as gold, you know. It's interesting you brought up Coventry there. Mm. Obviously, Sunderland and Coventry have history. Absolutely. Um, I was at Everton the night that Coventry delayed the kickoff. Yeah, well, what, um, what do you make of... I mean, the thing that I find... I, and for those, sorry, for those that don't understand that comment, I was yeah. at Everton and I covered... Sunderland were playing at Everton. Coventry were playing at over to Bristol City. It was the same night. We got it was, 2-0, did we? Yeah, it was, the, it was the end of the 76-77 season and uh, Coventry delayed the kickoff and uh, they managed to... The only way they would stay up is if they drew. And With Bristol lost. City, you also... They were playing draw. Bristol City. Bristol City were managed by Gordon Milne who had previously been assistant manager at Coventry. It was, it was a complete, in my opinion, it was a complete another set, other set up. Um, Coventry managed to kick... The attendance of the two grounds was identical. It was 36,000. Coventry delayed their kickoff saying they couldn't get the crowd in. Sunderland's game at Goodison Park kicked off on time. You might say, well, haven't they used to big crowds? Coventry had had a bigger crowd three or four weeks earlier against Liverpool, I think it was. They'd managed to kick off on time then. So, hey, look, I'm a Sunderland supporter. I'm, I'm one of those who despise with a capital D, Coventry City for that night. But I'm also a professional writer and yeah. it pays me bills. No, and I also have to say that with Coventry City, in the modern people of Coventry City, I've been writing for them now for two years and they won a, a programme of the year award uh, or one of the various awards last year. It was the first one they'd won for ages. So they were tickled pink with that and I was tickled pink to be able to help them. Um the people I've worked with at Coventry City, their club historian, who's a guy called Jim Brown, who's been a fantastic help to me, uh, a woman called Sarah Morris from the former Players Association at Coventry, who puts me in touch with a lot of former Coventry players, some of whom happen to have been former Sunderland players as well, which is handy. Um, and at their head of media, a guy called Mark Hornby. Every single one of those has been absolutely top class. So the people, and when I went down, I went down to the Coventry versus Sunderland match recently when I was. It was nice of Coventry. They invited me down into the boardroom that day as a little thank you. 
and I met some people from Coventry, like their chief exec, Dave Body, and so on. Um, to a man and woman, I have nothing at all but praise for the current people at Coventry City. But the Coventry City incident of 1977, I share every other Sunderland supporter's disgust. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wanna, I've got two final questions mm-hmm. uh, before we can mm-hmm. potter off and watch mm-hmm. the game this afternoon. Mm-hmm. So... Firstly, I was I was letting you know the answer to this question because mm-hmm. I think about it a lot. Mm-hmm. What do you think happened at the club in 2002 to turn us from a team that was on the brink? Let's be honest, they were on the brink of doing something great. I would argue that they could have been the Leicester mm-hmm. of the the early 2000s. They could have been that team. Mm-hmm. What do I think happened? What, what changed? Bad recruitment. Um, Peter Reid's my favourite son of the manager. Um... I went on many a pre-season two with Peter Reid. I had many, I, I think when you were doing word association, I think the word I said for Peter Reid was laugh, mm-hmm. if I remember rightly. It was. I had a lot of laughs with Peter Reid. And you could have talked to me for a good hour, just some funny stories about Peter Reid, which I'm really tempted to give you, but there's no time. <laughs> um, and Sunderland played the best football I've seen them play, certainly since the 1973 Cup, Cup team under Peter Reid. Uh, we we were an exciting team. We were great to watch. There was a real buzz. It was the the start of the stadium of light years when Peter came. I mean, obviously been there at Roger Park I mentioned earlier, but those years were fantastic. They were they were they were golden years, you know. When people talk about the good old days at that time, people were living through what are now the good old days. They were great days. And I remember going to do an interview with Peter when I think it was the occasion when he'd been manager for six years. And I talked to him about that next step you've just alluded to. How could we not go? For, you know, we went from seventh and seventh, and we were disappointed to finish seventh both years. Those years, you know, we'd been kicking around second, third, and fourth till well into the season, um, and then we fell away. And I remember talking to Peter about that next step. Ne- next step at this point, before it had all gone belly up, and Peter said to me, he "says Robbie says, um, getting us from where we are now, from seventh into the top four is a bigger step than where they were when I took them over when they had seven games to keep them up from going to the third division to get them to now being seventh two years running. So Peter knew that was a hard ask. Peter in his autobiography talks about not being given the money to spend. Peter did have money to spend. Bob Murray gave Peter a lot of money to spend. Peter Reid had some fantastic signings for someone. Kevin Phillips? For 350 or 650 with the, with the add-ons. Incidentally, that came through a former Sunderland manager from the early 80s, Alan, Alan Durbin, who was the man who scouted Kevin Phillips. Alan Durbin had also been the man who scouted a young Ali McCoyce when we bought him from St. Johnson when Derbs was manager. And then, of course, we couldn't afford to keep him. He was just a young boy. He was he was a favourite of the fans, but he wasn't scoring. He went off to Rangers and became their all-time record goal scorer, of course. But Durbin, Durbin, who was an ex-player of Cluffy's at Derby and a Welsh international, Derbs, Derbs, shall we say, had had history when it came to spotting a goal scorer, and it was Derbs that really was responsible for something getting Kevin Phillips. Lot of the great Peter Reid signs, of course, Gavin McCann for half a million, Thomas Sorensen, of course, he brought Quinny in, who we'd known from Manchester City, and so on. Stefan Schwartz, a brilliant, brilliant player. There's an example of an overseas player who was class yeah. and got Sunderland, um, and, a, and an absolute gentleman as well, by the way, one of the nicest blokes and finest professionals. You could ever wish to meet Stefan Schwartz, brilliant guy. Um, but then we did have money to spend on players. And, you know, once you start to mention names like Lillian Laslanders, 
Milton Nunes, people like that, and other people that were, that were that were signed that are largely forgotten. People like Carsten Fredgard, yeah, Thomas Helmer. So I was talking about Carsten Fredgard, Ericsson, <laughs> You know, all these kinds of people. You know, we, we spent an awful lot of money. Now the the club at the time, off the pitch, started to hemorrhage money. Um. You know, a year ago, I was one of 40-odd redundancies at the football club. Back at that time, there were 80-odd redundancies. At that time, I was threatened with redundancy, and I was together with a, a lady who was a secretary at the academy, who I won't name. Um, the two of us were the only two out of the 80-odd the who were going to be made redundant at that time, who the club then thought again about and changed their minds on when they realised it was really going to be, you know, more expensive to get rid of us than keep us. Um, but that's an indi- I mentioned that because it's an indication of how much trouble the club were in financially. Mm-hmm. Behind the scenes, Bob Murray was working very, very hard to keep the club afloat. But money had been spent, quite a lot of money. Torrey Andre Flo, Marcus Stewart, you know, but they were all bad signings. Peter Raider, every manager gets some good signings and bad signings. You hope to get the balance right. In the early days, the balance of Raider's signings were definitely right. I've just mentioned some brilliant yeah. signings, picked up for peanuts. But then when we did try and spend money, you know, not very many of those signings came off. Some were unlucky. Um, um, Piper, the winger from Leicester, for instance, was a cracking player, but then suffered badly from injuries. So they weren't all because they were bad players. or And obviously, in some cases, there were, were players who had been great players, but just didn't hit it off at Sunderland for one reason or another. So in in my view, that's the reason why things all went terribly wrong when we, things have been going so well. And then we finished fourth bottom. And then, of course, we finished bottom with 19 points. And yeah. a couple of years later, we were breaking our own unwanted Premier League record. You don't have to tell me. I remember. Mm. <laughs> I remember mm. it all too mm. well. Uh, the final thing really I want to touch on um, is where do you think Sunderland would be right now if they didn't build the stadium like? It's a great question, uh, and it's a question I suggest that everybody listening to this podcast answers themselves and comes up with their own answer and, and thinks themselves, because my view is just going to be one opinion upon many. Um, in terms of, I think you look at Everton, I often compare Sunderland to Everton. Same. Another, Similar another great club. The big thing, the obvious things about Everton, of course, you look at Goodison Park, the stands are designed by Archibald Leach, the same guy who designed the stands, both stands at Roker Park, not just the main stand with the trademark Archibald Leach lattice work. Um, another connection, of course, is Everton still run out of Z cars. Someone used to run out of Z cars in the days at Roker Park. And there's a long history between the two clubs. Um, Everton are a fine club. They're doing, they're doing great on the pitch. You know, by that I mean they are long, 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 long-term members of the top division, never having dropped out. Um, I know Everton fans would always like to be winning a bit more than they've won and putting a few more trophies on the table. But there again, in my lifetime, they've won the league a couple of times, they've won the FA Cup numerous times, they've won a European trophy. I would have certainly settled for that. Yeah. Um, but in terms of their ground, they've been trying to leave Goodison Park for decades. They're currently having another go at leaving Goodison Park. I've, I've not followed very closely, but I know they've got plans to move from Goodison Park again. How far down the line they are with those plans at the moment, I don't know. But they wish they would have moved years ago. Look at Tottenham. Tottenham have built this ground, just read in the paper yesterday. They've delayed their opening again. Again, it comes back to Bob Murray. There was no delay in um, Stadium Light. Stadium Light was built on time and on budget. It wasn't just great. You know, that was Bob Murray 
getting things done, his attention to detail. I know people take the mic out of him for the gold taps, but that was all part of the attention to detail and wanting the best and wanting the best for the club and wanting the best for the area and wanting the best for the supporters of which he is one. You know? Where would Sunderland be? Without if we'd if we'd never done that, we'd probably still be at Roker Park. Roker Park would be dropping to bits. It would be steeped in history and I would love the history. But try going to the toilet. Mm-hmm. Try staying dry. Try sitting on one of the seats that would have been bolted to the terraces and try to see. You know? And we wouldn't have had the money. You look at how much steady it costs these days to build, and you look at Bob did it at the right time. I didn't want to move from Roker Park when we moved. I was one of the people that wanted to stay at Roker Park. I was wrong. Not for the first time, not for the last time. You know, I want to have my own opinions. Bob Bob Murray was very much a visionary and wanted to get Sunderland to a new ground. He knew exactly what he was doing. And he he, he left Sunderland with um, a huge legacy, not just in terms of the ground, but also in terms of the tra- in terms of the training ground. And of course, he's still active in Sunderland now because Bob's very much the man pretty much entirely behind the new beacon of light that we've got, which is another tremendous asset to the city of Sunderland. I remember um, seeing, obviously I don't because of age, but I remember seeing plans to develop Roker Park. Mm, yeah. Do you, how do you think that would have went? Well, the problem with it was Roker Park, well, you see, when Roker Park, when Roker Park was first there, it was just on farmland and the houses sprung up around it. Um, we're now very concerned that we don't build up too much around the Stadium of Light, you know, because in years to come, if we extend the Stadium of Light, you'd be able to extend the stadium, but there'll be problems getting bigger crowds in and out because of what would be available there through the infrastructure. Um, Bob's wise to that, and he, he suffered from that at Roker Park because you really couldn't do very much Roker Park because it was surrounded by houses. Um, there was the car park outside the main stand that you could have moved around, you could have twizzled the ground around a little bit if you completely demolished it and started again. Like Wembley, that again, Bob was very, very influential in, in the rebuild. You know, at Wembley, they completely demolished the whole lot, didn't they, and started again. Um, and, you know, the, the, the pitch at Wembley, I think, is four metres lower than it used to be. Um, is they completely restructured the ground. He didn't really have the opportunity to do that at Roker Park. He'd only ever done something very limited. From a historical point of view, and because I'm, fr- and also because I was born and raised in Ryup, um, one of the things that was briefly mooted around that time is that the club would actually set up and rebuild a stadium. There was, this wasn't from the club officially, this was some fans that wanted to do this, but it gained a bit of traction in the papers at the time, I remember. There was some talk that they might build a stand on the, on the site of the old Ryup Hospital, a, a stand, a ground, on the site of the old Ryup Hospital. And if they had, they would have returned to their roots on the south side of the river, um, which from a historical point of view would have been quite interesting from my point of view because the first four places we played at were on the south side of the river, including... When I, say, I said places, not grounds, deliberately, mm-hmm. including the sort of little-known place that played where I've got a blue plaque up next to the uh, the Victoria Gardens pub up, um, up off Villette Road, where there wasn't really a ground. They were just finding a pitch to play on while mm-hmm. they were looking for somewhere before they went up to, Ash- up to Ashbrook, which was the last ground they played at the south side of the river before they moved north. So there was there was talk, obviously there was talk that we would have gone to Washington. Everybody might remember the Mini Wembley that was mm-hmm. the stadium we were trying to move out. I say Mini Wembley because they had the old twin, Wembley the north the twin towers, the Wembley in the north, that sort of thing. Um, you know, there was a possibility we would have gone up there. Um, you know, had we moved to Washington, um, I think that would have been a bad move. And the fact that that didn't come off ended up being, with people, the people at the club were disappointed that we didn't go to Washington when it happened. But in the long run, that was for the long-term benefit of the club because having the ground 
Sunderland booked the trend because lots of teams at that time were having new grounds, but generally the grounds were moving further out from the city yeah. centre and the heart of the cities they represented. In Sunderland's case, in Sunderland's case, partly through good fortune as the the, the Nissan the, the one up in Nissan didn't come off. Sunderland moved nearer to the city centre than the previous ground had been. And in the long run, that's certainly been a, a big plus from my point of view. And I think from the supporters' point of view and the city's point of view. Yeah, you go to grounds like, well, Coventry the other week and mm -hmm. it's in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, in the middle of nowhere. I, mean, I remember being on holiday in uh, in France a few years ago <clears throat> and I wanted to go and see a game at Nantes. And I drove up to Nantes with a Burnley supporter I'd befriended on the campsite I was stopping at. And we set off and we thought, neither of us knew where the ground was. We thought, this is showing our age again. We thought, we'll look for the lights. And when we got to Nantes, sure enough, we set, found some floodlights. We headed there. We eventually got there, found the ground was closed. Nantes had moved about two or three years earlier. Now I had a brand new <laughs> out-of-town stadium, which we did get to. And we did see the game. But again, it's just when people talk about grounds moving out, I thought that story always comes to my mind, you know, yeah. an illustration of teams moving away from the cities they represent. But in Sunderland's case, we move closer to the city. And I think it's that's been a big plus for us. And you've only got to look at the crowds that we've had at the Stadium of Light compared to the crowds that we had in latter years at Roker Park. To it's, see that. it's a Football as a whole is a very different beast to what it was when Sunderland won the third division before. But if you look at the crowds we had in the third division before, they're nothing like the crowds we have now. Um, Sunderland had 29,000 against Northampton in the last game in the third division, the last home game. We had another away game at Rotherham after that. But the last home game, we'd already won promotion and it was 29,000. Now, you might think that's not so great. But when I say that that was the biggest crowd in the top division that season, Newcastle United were in the top division that year. And Newcastle United's biggest crowd that year was for a Boxing Day game against Manchester United. You would think a combination of Boxing Day and Manchester United mm -hmm. really put the numbers up. And Newcastle in the top division had 26,000. It was a very, you know, when we had 29,000 against Northampton in the third division, football as a whole was a very different, a very different game really in terms, and it was partly down to spectator facilities. You know, grounds were crumbling. You know, football had a bad rap, deservedly, because of the hooliganism that was ripe that was rife throughout the 80s and had been in the 70s. There were terrible times when football got a very, very bad name. And I could never understand that. I could never understand why people went to football for a fight. If you want to fight, have a fight next, you know, in the corner of your street. Don't travel up and down the country. I used to go all over the place. Every game, some were playing home and away. I never went for a fight. I went to watch the match. You know, and it's great that these days that's exactly what you can do. Yeah. Just go and watch the match and enjoy the match. Right, we're all done. Uh, Rob, I probably could have went for another four hours, so mm. we'll have to get Sorry you back about on. that. Yeah, we'll have to get you back <laughs> on at some point. If, anybody, if, if anybody's still awake, well done. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> They'll do two sentences. But yeah. no, I've, I've still got questions that I wasn't able to get to, but that's fine. We'll, we'll definitely get you back on some Thank down, you very much. Enjoyed talking to you and some very good questions. And I hope that um, the people who do listen to this um, answer some of those questions themselves about what they think about things, you know, such as where would Sunderland Football Club be now if we hadn't moved at the time we'd moved. Mm -hmm. And everybody, every support has got their own special memories about their own special times. And not everybody will agree with me about such things as my view of Stefan Sessignon, for instance. <laughs> but, you know, football's all about opinions and that's why it's such a good game. Cool. Right, we've got some big podcasts coming up. Thanks again, Rob, for coming on. Thank and you. Um, Yeah, thanks. Thank you. 
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.